Well, let's begin. We uh, um, continuing tonight our little study on the one, one and dones. What I'm unofficially calling the one and done series. Um, the technical term are hapax, hapax legomenon. Words heard but once. Words heard one time in the Greek New Testament. Uh, let me reiterate why we do this in the Greek, not the Hebrew, why we are New Testament, not the Old. Um, it's not that there are not hapaxes in the Old Testament. There are a lot of them, in fact, words that don't appear again in the entire Old Testament. However, they're more difficult sometimes to ascertain what they mean because the Hebrew language is confined pretty much to the Hebrew people. And in the ancient world, there was no other, there was no other group of people using Hebrew. So we don't have cross-referenced material from a thousand years ago, 1500 years ago that are using these Hebrew words. We do with Greek. So we use hapax in the New Testament. And tonight we're going to run into a word uh, where this becomes relevant. Uh, for, the, for one of the first times, we're going to run into a word that we can't find anywhere else. But most of the time, we have all of the other writers. We have the Greek Stoics. We have, we have the Platos and the Aristotles. We have the... Um, the philosophers and we have the historians and we have them from the Roman world. We have them from the Greek world and it's countless and it's endless. And most of the world wrote in Greek for centuries up until Latin sort of took over as the scholarly way to write. So that's why we confine this study to the New Testament. But for those wondering, you can research hapax in the Old Testament. You can look up words that appear but once in the Hebrew. And we might just for good measure when I've sort of ran as far as I want to run in this New Testament, we might do a couple from the Old Testament. Um, no promises, but that's kind of why we've been doing it the way we've been doing it. I want to do a real quick rundown for those who are kind of coming and going in this. Maybe you join us late, you watch these, or you've tried to follow along, and maybe you think you've missed some, because I haven't titled them one and done, number one, number two, whatever. Uh, each week is just a different title. Um, so let me give you a real quick rundown. These are This is these lessons in order. Tomorrow bread, dead to bookkeeping, the double-minded man, distracted and troubled, rhyme time, cheated by condemnation, and then last week, soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Each one of those titles deals with at least one haypack. Sometimes we deal with two, sometimes two in the same passage, sometimes uh, two completely different words just for time's sake. Um, jump in there, uh, hopefully enjoy the journey. As you clicked onto this and, and watched, uh, got ready for this video, you might have noticed a very unusual title. Um, tonight I subtitle this, Calf-ufactured. Calf-ufactured, you can probably pick up manufactured in there, and of course the word calf um, in, interpolated into this word sometimes. A hapax is a made-up word. In other words, not only does it not appear anywhere else in the New Testament, making it a true hapax, it doesn't appear anywhere else in classic Greek literature. Tonight's word is one of those words. It doesn't appear anywhere after the New Testament. Tonight is one of those words. Uh, and it, it's a word that has baffled scholars because it's apparently made up. Now, I want to remind you of something I think we said early, early on in this. This is not limited to Greek and Hebrew. This is not limited to the Bible. Any and every language has its own set of hapax. Every author, if you want to get really technical, you could pick an author, 
pick John Grisham and pick a novel by John Grisham and you could find a word that appears only one time in the novel. And for linguistic purposes, that's a hapex inside of that book. That word exists but once inside the body of work. That doesn't mean anything per se for that novel, but it's an interesting thing. And so maybe it is an insight into why the author used it or does he ever use it again. Those are fun little journeys. That's all it is, is fun. Um, when it comes to the Bible, though, it can be both fun and have a much deeper thing behind it, possibly. And that's what I'm trying to do is a little bit of fun, but a lot of vehicle, a lot of using this to get us from point A to point B. Um, the English language owes an enormous favor to the works of William Shakespeare because Shakespeare coined, I think, I've read at least 1,500 words in the English language, some of which never got used outside of a Shakespearean play, some of which are very much a part of the lexicon uh, in the English language today. Um, just to show you, just to give you an idea of some of these, this has zero to do with theology. This has zero to do with the Bible, but it is kind of fun because tonight's the night when you get to make up words, apparently. We have a New Testament writer that made one up. So here's some made up words um, that we probably don't realize were made up. Shakespeare introduces all of these. And this is just, of course, a very limited amount of what he did. Excitement, embrace, addiction, bandit, fashionable, majestic, marketable, obscene, unreal, zany. There's a gazillion of them. Uh, I thought you might want to see five or six Shakespearean phrases that get used sort of in common language today in English that no one had ever done this before and he just makes them up because he needed to say something in his plays stuff like uh, one fell swoop one fell swoop always been one kind of one of my favorites because it doesn't really mean anything and yet we all use it as took care of that and we even make that sound sound one fell swoop we I don't know why you come up with that dead as a doornail love is blind uh, full circle, good run is my personal favorite. I should have put it at the end. Knock, knock, who's there? First person to ever do that with Shakespeare. Uh, it's in a Shakespearean play. Does that matter to the Jesus story? Absolutely not. This has zero to do with the gospel. Unless you consider that um, making up a word is apparently okay. Uh, especially when you've got a message you want to convey. And we're going to do that tonight. As you've probably already figured out, it has something to do with calf-ufactured. Uh, my, my main character tonight is a man named Stephen. Stephen is an interesting character on the biblical stage because he doesn't last long. He's on the stage, but he's not there long. He's a character that I, I want to, I'm going to try to oversell this tonight, okay, in a way. I want to be a little overzealous about Stephen because I don't think we've been, personally, I don't think we've been zealous enough about Stephen. I think Stephen is one of the most important unheralded figures in the New Testament. His life, we don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he had been on the scene. But on the biblical scene, his, his biggest contribution to biblical scholarship is not written by his own hand. It's a sermon that he preaches in defense of himself. Stephen appears at the end of the sixth chapter of Acts. This is after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's been teaching and preaching in the synagogues and temple of Jerusalem. He's a Jewish man who's become a convert to the way. 
He believes he's found the Messiah in Christ and he's one of the loudest and earliest voices about Jesus not named Peter. Peter's the loud voice we get. And then here comes Stephen like like this bull in a china shop. The seventh chapter of Acts is really a master class in dodging the direct question and yet answering it perfectly. Because here's the direct question. The Sanhedrin brings Stephen up on charges of blasphemy. And they say that this, this happens right at the end of Acts 6. And they say Stephen is a man who is telling others that this Jesus is going to come and destroy this place. And he's also uh, going to change the customs of Moses. And that's a pretty heady accusation. Jesus is going to come destroy this place. And he believes we'll have a change in the customs of Moses. Well, technically... The temple's going to come down. Religion as they know it is never going to be the same again. Sacrificial system, priestly systems, all going to go. And the laws and customs of Moses are most definitely going to change in regards to these followers of the way. So they're not necessarily wrong. And they give Stephen a chance to defend himself. Acts chapter 7 opens with them saying to Stephen, what do you have to say? And Stephen doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, that's crazy. He doesn't say, well, you know, I've been accused of this. I'd like to say this in my defense. He just completely ignores that. In Acts 7, Stephen walks his Jewish accusers through their own story. He starts with Abraham coming out of the land of his fathers, being called, circumcising his sons. He talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He goes through the 12 tribes of Israel. He takes them down into Egypt, into slavery. He has the death of Pharaoh and the rise of a new Pharaoh who doesn't know the people of God. And he subjugates them. And and Stephen says he puts our kids out in the elements to die. This is the exposure of the sons, the death of the boys. And Stephen goes deep into the story. And there's some fascinating stuff in Acts 7. Since we're talking about linguistics, we're talking about language. This is an appropriate place to put in that if you will read Acts 7 and you'll lay it up against the Old Testament, you'll notice some differences. Stephen uses numbers that aren't in the Old Testament story. Like he has, um, you know, X amount of people coming, out of, uh, coming down into Egypt. Seven, I think Stephen says 75 people come down into Egypt, Jake, Joseph's brothers. And the Bible has 70 people coming down into Egypt. And you go, well, who's right? Who's wrong? And this is where you get into the situation that Stephen isn't, wasn't raised on the Hebrew. He was raised on the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the number's different than it was in the Hebrew. Now, you can fight all day long about why the numbers are different, but you can't deny that Stephen must be reading one translation over the other translation. That kind of stuff's kind of cool as you read through it. But what really matters when you get deep into that seventh chapter is the scathing rebuke that Stephen ends up giving um, towards his accusers. That brings me to the Hapax. It brings me to tonight's title. We'll read it in one verse and we'll get, start doing some backdrop. This is not a long lesson tonight, but it does have, in my opinion, of all of the Hapaxes we've done, it does have some of the most important implications for our day-to-day living and what we're doing with this Jesus. Um, so let's start with the verse in question. Acts chapter 7, verse 41. They made a calf in those days. This is when Israel's come out of Egypt. They're at the mountain. Moses is at the top of the mountain talking to God. I brought you all the way up to that point in the story. They made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol. 
and they rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Simply put, golden calf story. Book of Exodus relays this blow by blow. Stephen's pretty much walking you through it. He brings us up to the culminating act of taking the silver, the gold jewelry and throwing it into the fire. And Aaron says, lo and behold, this calf, this cow came out. And I want to remind you that Aaron then says, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt and tomorrow shall be a feast day unto the Lord. And so Aaron connects the golden cow with the feast day of the Lord, Jehovah, which is Aaron's way of connecting the golden cow to Jehovah. That's an important point that doesn't always get brought out because I think sometimes we think they gave up on God and they just made him a brand new God, but Aaron doesn't see it that way. He presents this is the same God that brought you out. We've just given you something to look at. It's still the same God. This is just what he looks like when you put your jewelry into the fire. Boom, the cow comes out. Okay. It sounds silly, right? I think Stephen thought so too, but I think he also thought that it was bigger than just throwing jewelry in a fire. I think he thought there was a mindset behind this. And that's maybe why he doesn't use the Greek he could have used. Look at this. Made a calf is written in Greek or should be written in Greek. Ipoyasan moskan, made a calf. But that's not what Stephen says and it's not what Acts 7.41 says. That's what it should say if it was going to read this way. But it doesn't. Instead, Stephen makes up a word. A word that appears nowhere else in all of Greek literature before or since. Imaskoposian, this is an interesting one because notice there's some stuff in there <laughs> that are in the two words he needs. Ipoisin moskan, you see moskop in the middle, you see poison at the end. So you can tell, and this is how translators have handled this word because it's a made up word, but they can see elements of two other words. Go back to my baseball reference. It's in there, it just doesn't fit right. Like, they're there, but they're obviously jammed together in a way that's never been seen before. We really don't have any way outside of context and root word. That's why I point out the root words are there. And the context is definitely there because we know the story. You know, we know the golden calf story. And so the translators didn't really struggle too badly. They just went, well, he's got to be talking about the golden cow because that's the story. We know the story. It's in Exodus. So they wrote... He made a calf. But that's not what Stephen says. Now, we, maybe we're making too big a deal of it. Maybe it's just semantics. But I read a Greek scholar who landed with this phrase that I liked. And in those days, they calf-ufactured. And they brought up a sacrifice to the idol, and they rejoiced in the works of their hands. So, of course, I borrow that as my title tonight. Because it's not that they made a calf. Those words already exist in the Greek and Stephen didn't use them. Instead, he jams them together in a way that no one really knows what he means. And I think based upon the message he preaches, and that's what I want to work on tonight, based upon the message he preaches and the audience he preaches it to, and most importantly, the time in which he preaches it. This is vital for Stephen and this is why I'm going to go over the top and make a big case that Stephen is so important is the timing of his ministry and the timing of his death. 
might be one of the most important ones in the New Testament. And because of that, I think calfufactured is pretty good. They don't just make a cow. They make a business of it. They go into the business of manufacturing golden calves. And I think Stephen uses it because he's speaking to a group of people in whom by using it, he's accusing them of doing the same. You're still refusing the voice of the God that brings you out of Egypt and you're manufacturing an alternate version of him. You're still doing it. You're not making a real cow. You're just calf you factoring. You're in the calf you factoring business. You're still putting a little something in and then what you get out, you call God. But it's not necessarily God. No matter how much you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. It doesn't make it different because you claim it's different. And I think that's the heartbeat of Stephen's message. I already gave you the bulk of it. Now let's read the direct context, okay? To do that, we're in 41, but let's go back to 37. Watch Stephen work his way up to this big moment. This is the climactic moment of this sermon. It goes downhill from here for Stephen. I mean, it, this ends up getting him killed. In case you don't know this story, this is the guy upon whose death we meet Saul of Tarsus. When they stone Stephen to death, they take their coats off. Because if you're going to throw rocks, you've got to get your coat off. And they take their coats off to pick up their rocks and they throw them at the feet of the guy who's instructing them to do this. And it says they throw it at the feet of a man named Saul. Saul becomes the most important figure from this point on because he becomes the Apostle Paul. He writes this, the bulk of the New Testament. You know the story. But it's the death of Stephen that springboards us into the ministry of Paul. So what Stephen's about to say is so scathing and so heinous and so blasphemous to them that it costs him his life. Here's the context, 37. This is at Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is Stephen picking the one time Moses prophesies of Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus, but we have Moses prophesying of a prophet, capital P. New King James gives us capital P. Hebrew doesn't, but the Lord God's going to raise it for your prophet. So he picks the Moses prophesying of Jesus text. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. There's the accusation. They reject Moses. They don't want anything Moses has to say. In reality, they reject God. They only accept the word given to them through Moses, but they ultimately reject Moses as well. Why? Because in their hearts, they already turned back to Egypt. Their actions did not yet show it, but their hearts had already turned back to Egypt. Their hearts were already loyal to another system. This is why I told you this might be one of the most important ones that we've done so far. Because the great challenge in our day is to make sure that our hearts are not turned back towards Egypt, that our hearts are not longing for something that doesn't look like the Jesus of the Bible. And it's so easy to slide into that. And I think that's the point Stephen is making. Their hearts have already turned back to Egypt, and they said to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They, they're, they're not sure Moses isn't dead. They haven't seen him in a while. 
And they, met, and they made a calf in those days. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word, but they calfifactured. There it is. This is where Stephen decides, I'm going to throw a word out you guys never heard before. Because I think you were doing something bigger than just making a cow. You calfifactured. You offered sacrifices to the idol. You rejoiced in the works of your own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel. Kind of God going, yeah, you did, but you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch. You took up the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I'll carry you away beyond Babylon. So the golden calf wasn't alone, in other words. Golden calf's not an isolated incident. You're in the calfifacturing business. You're pretty good at creating tabernacles to Molech, stars for Remphim, and images made to worship. It's not just a cow. You'll put anything you can find into the place of God and call it God. And then expect that God's going to keep his end of the covenant with you and that God's going to continue to bless you, that God's going to continue to be with you. And if you know what's going on in the background in this message, you know what Stephen's doing. He's accusing them of rejecting the prophet, the one Moses told them about. That they're so busy calfifacturing, they're so busy creating alternate versions of God that they would miss God if he walked into their midst. That's the great accusation that Stephen is making. I skip ahead just a little bit. There's a, a great passage on God's true tabernacle, but I want you to watch the rejection. So we jump to verse 51. This is the kind of stuff right here that gets you killed. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. <laughs> well, that's good enough. Uh, especially when you're dealing with people who are the circumcised. And so then you go for the, you go for the throat. You go, well, you might be bragging, and Paul's going to use this kind of talk later. In fact, I wonder if Saul, standing here hearing this message, stores it away. And then years later, years later, after multiple revelations of grace, he goes, boy, that Stephen had it. Because Stephen's the first one to say this, not Paul. It's Stephen that goes, you're uncircumcised in heart. You're uncircumcised in your ears. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. Just as your fathers did, so do you. So do you means everything I've been preaching has been for a reason. I wasn't preaching about your past. I was preaching about your present. You're doing the same things they did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. There's Jesus. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. 53 who have received the law by the direction of angels and haven't kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. It works. Stephen does what he sets out to do. He doesn't do what they ask him to do. They ask him to defend himself on the accusations of blasphemy, that Jesus is going to come and destroy this place, and that you're going to drag us away and change the customs of Moses. Stephen turns the tables and says, you don't even understand the customs of Moses. You're just like your fathers. It doesn't matter who we put in front of you, you're going to kill him anyway. Because when the just one and the holy one walks in front of you, you'll always miss him. And the reason that you miss him is because you're in the calfifacturing business. You keep allowing something else to take the place of God, and you're going to miss it one time too many. Because you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and in ear. And this is it. This is that final shot. This is that final chance. Now, let me make my case tonight for why I believe we are dealing with one of the most important people in the New Testament. 
The prophetic timeline of the Bible, contrary to the way it is often taught, just to be blunt, contrary to the way it's often taught even now, the prophetic timeline of the Bible has found its culmination in Jesus. It is not finding its culmination in Jesus. It has found its culmination in Jesus. For those enamored of prophecy in a way in which they feel as if websites and news programs are the best way to interpret the events of the Bible are a couple of thousand years too late for most of the prophecies they are looking at, but they also are using the, ex the complete wrong template for understanding the voice of God, which is to look around at the actions of men. We don't understand the voice of God by trying to interpret the actions of the timeline. So the timeline that the New Testament is so enamored of is a timeline not that deals with the end of the global war, world, the cosmos as we know them. This is a phrase completely foreign to the world of the first century. They did not think in terms of the cosmos passing away. We don't have that phrase in the Greek. Cosmos is the earth in the heavens. They don't have the cosmos going anywhere. In fact, their Hebrew tradition saw the world as being without end. Paul even uses that phrase in one of his writings. He says, world without end. And he uses cosmos. They do, however, very much believe they are at the culminating apex of history. They believe that in some ways that they can't possibly comprehend that they are at the most important time to be alive. In fact, Paul would say to the Galatians, at the fullness of time, Christ came. It was Paul's way of saying, the sand hourglass had been turned over, and when the last bead dropped, Jesus cried. And it was their way of going, it all was heading up to Jesus. And in Christ, then, all becomes fulfilled. It's why the, it's why the letter to the Hebrews opens with God who in various times and in different manners has spoken unto us in times past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It's them saying all the way up till Jesus, God talked through different voices and then he showed up and he only talked through Jesus. And what he says through Jesus is the final word and Jesus becomes the express image of the Father. He's what God looks like. All of history up into that and it the, 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 the timeline, I think we've even used this sort of illustration before, like a tree falling, the New Testament writers are sort of yelling timber. These last days, we upon whom the end of the world have come, over and over and over and over and over again, timber, 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 and we culminate in the crashing. But it's not as if it came out of nowhere. They have this. They have it on the prophetic timeline, particularly in the book of Daniel which lays out what in Bible prophecy world is one of the futurists' favorite phrases. Daniel's 70 weeks. And what I mean by futurists are people who think that the prophecies are on pause and are yet to be fulfilled. And the pause is in the 70th week. This is where futurists get a seven-year tribulation period. They believe that Daniel's 70th week, the Bible says weeks of years, 70 times seven, 70 weeks of years. They believe that final week, Daniel's 70th week, is on pause. Even though 
Daniel never prophesied it would be on pause. Daniel did prophesy that something would happen in the middle of the last week. In Daniel's prophecy, he prophesies of the one who will come and bring peace and that he would be cut off from his people three and a half years in. Do you know why to this day in the church we all say Jesus had a three and a half year ministry? I heard that from a little kid on and no one ever explained how they figured that out. Like it's not like the gospels go, he preached for three and a half years. Where do we get that? We got that from Daniel because years ago when people didn't have a futurist eschatology, they looked at Daniel's 70th week and went, who's the one that dies halfway through? Who's the bringer of peace that dies halfway through? It's not some future antichrist. It was the Christ who halfway through in the last of Daniel's 70 weeks, because if you count 490 years from the prophecy of Daniel, you get all the way up to a very significant event, three and a half years in front of the end of the clock. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And just a few years later, another event occurs that when it occurs, launches the next generation. Stoning of Stephen. Here's what I see. Stephen is the last signpost. He's the end of Daniel's 70th week. Daniel prophesied of the Son of Man. Daniel is the one who tells us about the Son of Man. The Son of Man shall stand in front of the Ancient of Days and shall receive a kingdom that has no end. He shall ride on the clouds and stand in front of the Ancient of Days. Jesus comes along and calls himself the Son of Man. By calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's going to ride the clouds and stand in front of the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom that hath no end. And the government's going to rest upon his shoulders. We know that's Jesus. But we don't often think son of man in prophetic terms. We should. Okay. Son of man. Standing in front of the ancient of days. Daniel prophesies of him and of that man being cut off halfway through the final seven years on the clock. That gives us the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. When Stephen dies, the gospel explodes outward from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. What God told the disciples to do in Acts 1. It happens when Stephen dies, but it takes the death of Stephen to scare everybody out like the light coming on and the cockroaches scatter. It takes the death of Stephen to spur it onward. But it's more than that. It's because it's the end of the 70 weeks. In his death, this is to me what sells it. To me, this is the moment. In his death, Stephen becomes the first person not named Jesus. To refer to Jesus as a son of man. I've never heard anybody else say that. I saw it in study. I double checked it. I can't find anybody else ever calling Jesus the son of man. Jesus called himself the son of man. I don't think anybody else had the nerve to say it. Because if you called him the son of man, you knew you were in the final week. This was it. And if you're in the final week, what's going to happen next? Watch how Stephen dies. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's the ascended and seated Christ. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
Nobody's ever said this before. When he says son of man, he puts the Daniel title onto the ascended and seated Christ. It's Stephen in his final breath grabbing the Daniel prophecy and pulling it into his present in front of his audience and going, he is the one. He's the son of man. You can't fashion anything else. You've already found him. He's the culmination of the whole dream. It's all over with. He's the one you were looking for. He's the one we find. To me, it's, it's, it's this, as far as I'm concerned, puts Stephen, he's, he's as high as you can get on the importance of the chronology of the New Testament. This is a moment where humanity makes a confession on par with Thomas's confession. Remember after Jesus resurrects, and Jesus goes, here, put your hand on my side and put your hand in my nail-scarred hands and see that it's me. And Thomas does and goes, my Lord, my God. And we get permission right there to call Jesus God because when you have a resurrection, a resurrected Jesus and you have a revelation of that Jesus, well, he has to be God because only God could raise himself from the dead. Logic. Faith meets logic. And you go, and Jesus goes, blessed are those of you that could believe that without seeing. And you go, okay, well, that's us. That's a great revelation. And then comes Stephen. And in his dying breath says, he's there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That means he's ascended. He's on par, at right hand of the Father means he's on par with God. Not only that, he's the Son of Man. That's the one. That's the one riding on the clouds. That's the one. That's the one who stands in front of the Ancient of Days. I see the heavens open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 57. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him with one accord. They don't want to hear this because if this is true, the story is almost over. And everything he just told them is everything they just accused him of. Remember what they said at the end of chapter six? He's here to say that Jesus is going to come and destroy this place. Not exactly, but they're not far from the ballpark. It's Stephen going, hmm. Get destruction words out of your mouth. The reality is, is that the kingdom in its fullness is in Christ. Christ is the Ancient of Days, or, or is the Son of Man who stands in front of the Ancient of Days. They stop their ears because they don't want to hear that. And they cast him out of the city and they stone him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This has got to be one of the most powerful transition moments. Stephen to Saul in the Bible. 59.60, just to finish the story. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down with a loud voice. And if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus and you're going to conform to his death, die like Jesus died. Die with forgiveness on your lips. Lord, don't charge him with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Greek word for he died. So Stephen copies his master. Jesus dies and goes, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen dies and goes, Lord, don't charge him with this sin. Amazing. My thoughts. Stephen presents Israel with the culmination of their story. Stephen accuses them of consistently manufacturing, calfufacturing, a God that they can accept instead of the God that's been given to them. We've got to be very careful of calfufacturing to this day. A God we can accept who looks like us, smells like us, hates like us, gets back at people like us, Instead of the God that's given to us, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Father. If the story is to truly matter to us, then it has to be more than just a lesson in history. Because it is a lesson in history. This is the beginning of the end. The temple comes down in one generation. The clock strikes midnight. 
at the death of Stephen. And Jesus said, this generation will pass away till all this happens. There, the tree's coming down. By the time you get to Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8 closes with, that which is old is ready to vanish away, and it's obsolete. It's, it's just on, it's on life support. That's the whole book of Hebrews is don't go back to that, man. There's no life there. You can't go back. It's just life support. It's not going to work forever. This is the beginning of the end. The temple comes down in one generation. It's got to be more than history. It's got to be more than history. It is history, but it's also a warning. Don't fashion a Jesus made in the image of Egypt. And Egypt don't mean much to us. So don't fashion an image made like Rome or made like America or made like your ideology or anything else. Don't allow the Son of Man who stands at the right hand of the Father to become in our own worship, in our own image, something that looks nothing like the Jesus of the Gospels. Because the, the possibility is still there for us. You know, I love these stories as history. They're fascinating. And I just kind of gave you one. And I really pushed it tonight. I tried to on purpose. Because who's pushing it with Stephen? We should. This is an amazing moment. When he dies, Saul goes nuts persecuting the church. When seven ends, eight starts, Saul goes on a rampage, killing, authorizing the death of Christians. And by, listen to Acts 8, 4. I didn't give you this verse, but listen to this. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8, 4 is the most pivotal verse in the book of Acts. They finally do what they're supposed to do. And it took Stephen's death, but it didn't just take Stephen's death. It took the clock striking midnight. Time's up. Let's go. And the rest of the New Testament looks back on this. They don't just look back on the cross and the resurrection. They look back on this and they go, the end is here. Time is at hand, man. We have found the Son of Man. He's this the one. I don't know what cafefacturing, I don't know what it looks like across time to each culture, to each generation. I think it, 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 I think it probably shifts. I think maybe it's why Stephen made up a word. I think in his death, in this final sermon, he needed something bigger. You know? He needed something bigger than made a calf. So he coins a phrase. And I, and I know we're playing a little bit loose with what he might have meant. But in doing so, he, he surrounds it with this message of, of their rejection of the true God. And he wraps it up in Jesus. And the fear then becomes that cafefacturing is a real thing, something that we do, and we might not even realize that we're doing it. And we need to return constantly to Jesus, lest we fashion the calf to look like we want it to look. Every time I minister this or think about this or, or dwell on this, I always run into the end being at a loss because I, for so long, have looked at ministry as a way to fix stuff. Preachers are supposed to come up with stuff that fixes stuff. Like, we're supposed to come up with a word, and you can fix it. And the problem is, is it doesn't work that way. Like, we're not going to preach a sermon that's going to fix something. All we're really doing is making you alert to stuff. We're just opening your eyes to something. And you don't have to keep them open to it. You don't even have to look at it. But if you do, and it moves you, then you become responsible for how you deal with it. So 
I don't, have to, I don't have a word to fix this. I don't even know that I have a word to properly identify it. But now that you know it's out there, now that you know cafefacturing is a thing, and you know that Stephen goes down swinging with, hey, you did it before, you're doing it again, then maybe the warning to us should be, don't do it. Be careful with it. Watch out, lest we fashion a God that looks like our ideology, that looks like our idea of a perfect nation that looks like our political heroes, that looks like our financial systems. I don't know. I don't know what, I know that I've fashioned some calves and thought they were God. And I've had him cold and I've had him distant and I've had him mad and I've had him ready to burn everybody in hell forever. And it's taken revelations of God's love for me to learn how to put that calf in the fire and let God burn it up. And some things I've put in the fire and they've come back out shiny. And I've realized that some things I put in the fire, maybe they really were what God looked like. And the fire shows the difference between what needs to burn up and what doesn't. That's not my job, that's his job. But I am responsible for putting that baby in the fire and watching what he does. And I think so are you, and so are you. And the good news is don't be condemned. If, if you fashion a calf, get rid of it, but receive the prayer Stephen prays. It's the same prayer Jesus prays. Father, forgive them. It's, it's a lot like Father, forgive them. They don't know what they were doing. They didn't realize they were making golden calves. And you didn't either. I didn't either. But, but once we do, let's quit throwing our gold in the fire and, and creating a God that looks like we want him to look and start looking to Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the Father. Right. Let's pray. Let's pray. I pray for you. You pray for me. Together we pray that we move out of the calf manufacturing business if we're in it. We all probably are inadvertently. Father, thank you for this word tonight. Thank you for this remarkable story of your servant, Stephen, whose, whose little moment on the stage of the Bible is so powerful, not just powerful for its time, which it was, but it's powerful for us. It reminds us how easy it is for us to fashion a God the way we want him to be. And then when Jesus walks in front of us, we miss it. Because surely you don't look like that. And I know that I've done this so often, it's embarrassing. And I know I'm probably still doing it. Now teach me daily what to put into the fire and to watch for what you bring back out. Do it with all of us. I pray this for those here. I pray this for those watching now and sometime down the road. Father, may we become a people who've moved on from fashioning the calf, thinking we need something a little more tangible instead of the invisible. We ask it and we believe it and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.